Welcome to Visionaries. I'm John LaBelle, your host, and you'll find us here on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm every Monday at 10 a.m. Also, all of your favorite podcast outlets, and uh, you can find our back shows at <clears throat> visionaries.podbean.com. So, our special guest today is M.J. Dorian award-winning composer who writes music for film and television. And he's also been doing um, podcasts on creativity. MJ. Hey, John. <laughs> How are you? And uh, tell us, what's a podcast? How do you set them up? And what are yours about? <laughs> well, this is a podcast, so we're already cool. halfway there. I know, all I know is I come in and I sit in the studio and talking to a mic. Oh, no but kidding. Somehow it ends up on you, on iTunes and all that kind of stuff, right? On Podbean and, and such? Because I know you're always plugging the Podbean thing. Um, I mean, yeah, it's, 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 it's the new art form. We could say it's the, one of the most recent uh, iterations of radio in a sense, right? Now, they've been around since the, uh, the iPods came out. And I noticed that there are a whole group of people, some I follow, it's called the Intellectual Dark Web. Mm. that their whole thing, things, is on um, YouTube. And uh, so um, one of them is um, is uh, uh, Peterson, Jordan Peterson, who says YouTube's going to replace cable TV. Right. Um, YouTube's going to win. And mm. then he describes why. So how does podcasts compare to YouTube in terms of audience size, influence? How do people find you? How do people find your broadcast? Right. I mean, th there's quite a few apps these days for podcasts between uh, everything from just regular Apple podcasts if you have iPhone to Google podcasts if you're on uh, Android and Google to things like Podbean and CastBox and Anchor and Spotify. I mean, it's become like the new thing. So right? do you have to make sure your show's on all of them? In a sense, like, but all the platforms that you might post your um, your podcast too like I post through anchor uh, it's called it's just called anchor.fm or anchor.com it's, it's a site that uh, it's that one happens to be for free and then they go through the trouble of making sure it links through with all those other podcasts so platforms. you only have to do one yeah I just do the one write in whatever info is required and make sure that it's you know a good recording but they don't even quality check so these days it's it's really very much like a YouTube market where everybody can just do it. And so so what what are you doing? What what have you you know what were you interested in? How'd you decide to do a podcast and what it's what's it about? Yeah, I mean it's been going in my mind for a little while, and and I finally uh, sat down and, and tried to plan it out because it's been kind of a lifelong passion of mine to research creativity and, and read about my favorite creative icons and. Um, everything from their, their personal journals to research about them and specifically what their inner life was like, what their process was. You know, we, we kind of take for granted all these brilliant people from Leonardo da Vinci to you know, Frida Kahlo to Salvador Dali or, or any artists even up to today. And, and we are so fixated on what they made for the exterior exterior world. But I'm just really fascinated by what was going on in their mind that we can learn from 
and hopefully help us understand what creativity is after the 200,000 years humans have been around, we, we really still have no concept of it. So it's interesting that you put it that way because uh, <clears throat> I did a book, Visionary Creativity, and in doing it, I read a lot of the other books. Mm -hmm. And <clears throat> I really found... I'm very disappointing. I like uh, right. <laughs> exactly. I like, I like Kessler's The Act of Creation, but that's about mm. it. And the the main th what I tell my students is, if you want to know about creativity, read biographies. Yeah. Um, totally. You know whether it's um, Isaacson's Einstein or um, uh, surprisingly enough, Arianna Huffington's book on Picasso is brilliant. No kidding. I'll write that down. This before she became. The figure she is today. No kidding. And, oh, and I'm I'm listening on audio, and I have a Museum of Modern Art huge catalog. Mm. That's just about everything he did in of it. Of all the paintings so she mentions, oh. I can yeah, everything she mentions That's is in wonderful. there. That's like a podcast, basically, right? right. Like audio book is a podcast. And then I just did. Uh, I just listened <clears throat> to Isaacson's uh, Leonardo da Vinci. Yes, so, I read that one. It's so good. Cool. So. Um, Tell us about, you know, you, I, I listened to a couple of your podcasts, and particularly the one on Da Vinci. So you do a little bit of production there. There's music, there's settings, there's... Uh, so tell us about how you do them and what you were doing with your Da Vinci one. Sure. I mean, that goes back to the idea of, of podcasting as a new art form. And I think because it's still new... Uh, you know, some people just assume it's, it's conversations, which is wonderful and valuable in its own sense. But there's also, I think, potential there for things kind of uh, what I'm interested in with it is like imaginative lectures and soundscapes. And in the process of, of listening to like one of these uh, lectures, uh, you kind of enter into a different frame of, of mind. I mean, you could enter into like a med meditative state or just to kind of a very like a daydream-like state where now, you know, if, if the proper music and sound is added to it, you can be transported somewhere where perhaps you'll learn it, the information in a different way or, or be engaged by it in, in a way that's more meaningful. So I'm yeah. old enough that uh, I used to listen to The Lone Ranger on the radio <laughs> as a kid. And they were starting to fade out in the mid-50s. But from the late 40s through the mid-50s, there were, um, uh, it's before TV, it was radio. And so there were these dramas, The Lone Ranger and Sergeant Preston. They had like sound effects, come. right? Probably, right? They, it was dramatized with sound right. effects. And particularly, um, very atmospheric were the mystery ones. Mm. There's, there's uh, if you tune into WBAI in New York on Sunday evenings, there's an old-time radio show. But all the old shows are available free if you hunt them down online. Hmm. And they they really did set, they had sound effects and music. Right. And really set a dramatic, uh, one of the ones I like to follow is called Johnny Dollar. He's an insurance investigator. And hmm. so he tells the story through his expense account. But, you hmm. know, if it's if he's going downstairs, clip, clop, clip, clop, you know. Yeah, sure, sure. Or, uh, That's fun. Uh, same thing with the Lone Ranger. You know, there's somebody in the studio making horse mm -hmm. horse hoof beats. Sure. So I got that feeling from your uh, Da Vinci one that you sort of set the atmosphere <coughs> with the music and the sounds. Yeah, it's kind of like we take for granted that we all have a very rich imagination 
it doesn't even have to be a visual imagination. I mean, um, you can have a great imagination for just uh, setting a scene in your mind just based on the implied sounds, right? So, I, but that's funny that you mentioned that because I never, uh, I didn't make that connection before. But I do remember early on uh, in my pre-college years, I had a recording of the War of the Worlds, and I was listening to it. And uh, there may have been an early influence where I, got, I was like, wow, this is so neat. This is, um, you know, this fooled so many people. And, and that's yeah, one of the reasons. The sound and effects. he did that every week. It's just mm. that was the one that uh, that was controversial mm. and got everybody to freak out. But um, Orson Welles had uh, Mercury Theater Group, mm. and he had a regular radio show. And uh, there was, you know, his stuff was on every week. Orson Welles or H.G. Wells? Orson Welles is the actor who did. H.G. Wells wrote the, wrote the original. Wrote the original. Oh, the right. The turn of the century. Right. And Orson Welles was the uh, great movie producer whose career was rather limited. But sure, no, did, I love Orson Welles. Yeah, yeah the, the Magnuson Ambersons and Hearst. What was the name of that? What was the name of the movie with about the newspaper magnate? Oh, um, bro, not Rosebud, but Citizen Kane. Citizen Kane, <laughs> wow. Here we are, these buffs here. We can't even remember the greatest movie of all time. <laughs> so, um, but he was a real polymath. He had radio Fascinating shows. guy. He's a magician. He did everything. Yeah. I want, I want to do a little episode about him, too. He did theatrical productions. And his uh, movie Citizen Kane sort of picked on... Um, the newspaper magnate Hearst, right. and he put the kibosh on Orson Welles' movie career. So he didn't do a lot of movies after that. Hmm. You know, he really? Would've, he would have become a studio of his own. But he so just, there was like some behind-the-scenes stuff going on? Or? Yeah, he just told everybody you're not to go near him, you can't finance his movies, <clears throat> you can't no. produce his movies. But he did do a lot of movies after that still. Not a, not a lot. You know, uh, But they were like... He, like he did the Magnuson Ambersons, was never finished. Mm. Uh, much later, he did Touch of Evil. Right, but it's a handful. It isn't like huh. it isn't like um, until he had his most recent run in. Uh, Woody Allen did a movie a year for like thirty years, mm. uh, or um, uh, whom you know, uh, uh, Alfred Hitchcock. Right, you know, right. He could have certainly movies. been up there in terms of prolific as Alfred Hitchcock. Yeah. Huh. Um, he was. He was also a, a prolific. Whiskey drinker and rare steak eater. <laughs> Orson right, 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 right. That's right. <laughs> uh, like his favorite, favorite meal, apparently. So um, tell us what you, you're finding out about creativity and how these podcasts are helping you and you're thinking about it. Yeah, I mean, it's become a, a really nice structure to uh, dive in and investigate these, these creative minds. Uh, the one I'm currently working on is, is for Nikola Tesla. And that's a really fun one because that guy was such a weirdo. But um, if we're just going back and talking about some of the, the ones. So tell yeah. our audience who Nikola Tesla is. Oh, come on. People must by now know. Oh, uh, yeah. But, you know, so he was Edison's major competitor. Right. And um, uh, <coughs> famously fired with Edison over alternating versus direct current electricity. Sure. And yeah. Tesla was right. It had to be alternating totally right. current. But... <laughs> He um, he said he could transmit without wires two things: information and electricity. Mm. Radio. <laughs> right here we are. And uh, he maybe wasn't given. Maybe uh, 
Marconi was given some credit that Tesla should have gotten. Well, yeah, no, I was radio. reading recently. I mean, uh, all of – well, what happened is uh, Tesla was like uh, in his laboratory at the time. And then uh, one of his assistants comes over and tells him, oh, um, Marconi has just been – there's like a paper came out that uh, he is being credited as creating radio. But um, – we know that you were, you know, we were working on this already. And then Tesla goes, oh, you know, let him have it. Uh, he's using 10 of my patents anyway. <laughs> it's like, whoa. Like, he, he was very open source. He was, like, open source before it was even a thing. Like, he had all these patents, and when people would use them, he wouldn't defend the legality of it to get money. That's one of the reasons why he died a beggar. But, um, he, he, yeah, he was a fascinating character. One of the interesting things about him is that <clears throat> I... Uh, I'm an architect, and I had to take a course in electricity mm. in architecture school, and it was the hardest course. It was like, you know, when your brain starts to hurt. When you, oh, yeah. I, you I don't know. even know the first thing about electricity. So I just <laughs> memorized a couple formulas, and, um, and um, I'm going to put Edison down that you can think of electricity as water going through a hose. Mm. You know, the electrons go through a hose. The hose is the wires, comes into your building. Have a big uh, box. It switches it off, and it goes through air conditioners and lights and stuff like that, and goes out. And the amount of resistance to all this is what you get billed. And that resistance makes heat, light, uh, runs your computers. Oh, et interesting. So the resistance of the the it being used. If there's no resistance, it just goes it just through. Goes. And there's nothing on your bill. So like the light bulbs are the resistance. Right. The computer is the resistance. Right. Oh. Now, oh. however. That's a very linear way right. of thinking about it. And in a simple in simple terms, that, that's a good way to understand it for us architects. <laughs> but it's really much more complicated. Mm. And there's really there's three wires, there's not two. And there's whole it's really fields in flux that somehow yes, there are wires, but it's you know, like you only need one wire because the the earth can be the other wire. Hmm. And so the way of understanding it as fields and flux is the way Tesla understood it. Yeah, he understood it very intuitively. Which right. Is amazing. And uh, there's there's still stuff we we don't fully understand about it. Yeah. And uh, it, it was that, as you put it, intuitive understanding of it as something other than linear electrons going through a wire, like water going through a hose, that made him much more imaginative than Edison. Yeah. And um, it's uh, it's really so complicated that <laughs> most people can't even understand it to this day. Yeah, it was kind of almost like a failure of imagination on Edison's part. That Like Tesla comes to him, Edison tells him, okay, I have a problem with this direct current. It's, it's just not very efficient. We need to fix it. Can you fix it? And I'll give you $50,000. And then Tesla's like, I have this alternating current idea and it's better. It's more efficient. And then Edison tells him, um, no, just fix the damn direct current like I told you. And then he does. He actually improves it. And um, But then in the end, he, uh, Tesla was right. It was, like he, it was like a failure of imagination, like that there was a better way. Right. So who are some of the other figures you're, you're interested in? We may, on your current broadcast, we may see on your future podcasts. Yeah, I mean, uh, like I said about uh, Leonardo da Vinci was my second episode. My first episode was uh, more exploring how art may have started. 
like the origin of art, uh-huh. which is which is like a you know a pretty huge topic um, How did art to try begin? to tackle. Right, <laughs> like what is the origin of creativity and art, uh, which led me into really neat territory, uh, learning about uh, cave paintings and these really early human civilizations and the fact that cave paintings, which can be clearly seen as art, uh, predate written language. So you kind of arrive at this this realization that art predates written language, predates civilizations, predates cities, predates agriculture. And it's like, whoa, this, uh, this thing has been with us. So I have, I have two thoughts for you. Yeah. One is to, you know, think beyond art. Mm. So, you know, tool making, mm-hmm. um, et cetera, and what point it, it goes from functional to aesthetic. Right. And, and I would strongly <clears throat> recommend a book by Matt Ridley mm-hmm. called um, The Rational Optimist. And <clears throat> the book is a lot about uh, technological progress today, but he goes back to the beginning, hmm. and he he says creative, let's say, progress, we want to call it technological, whatever, comes from, he's got this great phrase, sex between ideas. Neat. So, you know, I mean, to be kind of crude, hmm. one person has the wheel, another person has an axle, mm. put the two together, and suddenly mm-hmm. you get... A whole other thing. Wow. I like that idea, the sex between ideas. (laughs) um, So the uh, early archaeology, there are sites, and he talks about this, where there are just piles of uh, of flint or obsidian or whatever, knives and stuff like that. And someone's just making these things out of obsessively, you know. Right. uh, More than they can use. Hmm. And then that leads to trade. And uh, But the... The, the, the thing that's identified, you start finding, say, obsidian knives. Obsidian is a black sort of... Um, yeah, it's a beautiful Yeah, it's sort beautiful of like stone. coal. It's like like coal? hard coal, mm. where when you chip it, you get this, you know, it, like with flint, you get a sharp edge. I mm. mean, really sharp, like glass. Mm. And, but the only source of obsidian is 100 miles away. So somebody's engaged in trade. Right. Somebody's moving stuff around. And with this stuff moving around, ideas are moving around. Sure. And then these ideas interact. And uh, uh, one of the things we, we notice is that uh, if we look at um, the most recent presentation of it is Steven Pinker's Enlightenment Now. Hmm. A lot of people have noticed you make a a graph of progress, whether it's GDP or longevity or health or food per person, and it sort of goes up at a fraction of a percent over thousands of years to um, 1800. Mm. And then suddenly it starts going straight up. Mm. <laughs> you know, it, it, it's been a, an exponential curve, and it starts... And we can see that with computers that double in capability every two right. years. But <clears throat> it's uh, applicable everywhere. And uh, so what he does, and, and he looks calls on uh, archaeologists, 
you get hundreds or thousands of years with no change. Right. And then you get something takes off. And so they analyze. So if we if we call that taking off creativity, you know, whether it shows up in art or in agricultural technology or in metallurgy, whatever, uh, what makes it take off? Hmm. And that's the kind of thing he looks at in that book. Hmm. Hmm. That kind of uh, reminds me of an interesting idea, that I, uh, an insight that I had, and I'm wondering your thoughts on it too. So this idea that uh, art originally didn't serve an aesthetic function or personal function, I, I think art originally served a symbolic function where when you look at these cave paintings and things like this, you, you kind of try to figure out what are they doing and the the spaces where the paintings are uh, they never find human bones there they find animal bones and so they find human footprints but then you, you can't help but ask you know well what were they using them for and then you start to find like little areas like uh, in the show v caves there's what really like strikingly resembles an altar because it's a, close to a rectangular stone in the center of one of these large rooms, and on it is a is a skull of a cave bear, and so I can't help but associate that with with rituals, that the idea that the paintings were serving a function um, that wasn't aesthetic that was symbolic in nature, uh, probably to aid them in a ceremony in prayer or in just the idea that. Um, you know, either they would kill an animal and then paint it, or they would paint the animal so that they would feel like it would bless them in the hunt, you know, like the, all these symbolic functions. Well, I think uh, the, so the idea should be to hold both notions in your mind. In other mm. words, they're functional in the case of being ceremonial or ritual, and at the same time, <clears throat> the person doing it has an aesthetic intent. You know, uh, right. yeah, I got to do this stuff. It's like uh, Bach in his music. He had to write a piece every week for <laughs> Sunday. I don't write a lot. Right, for Sunday Mass. Busy but, man. <laughs> but, uh, and 90% of his stuff is lost. But, um, yeah, I got to write this thing every week. But mm. that doesn't mean he can't engage in a profound aesthetic exploration, right. even if he's the only one who appreciates True. it. Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> and uh, same thing with how much of even uh, medieval and Renaissance art is altarpieces. Mm-hmm. You know, but we now put them in the art history book and, mm. and don't even remember that it had something to do with Christianity. Uh, but, so yeah, we've got to make this altarpiece, but the artist is, is really getting off on their aesthetic exploration. <laughs> right. So. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm I'm sure it can be both. Sure. No. Yeah. Absolutely. I I think you're right. So tell us about Frida Kahlo. That's one of your uh, podcasts. Yeah. Who is she? And it, all of a sudden, it, it's maybe there was a major exhibit about five years ago. She was always there. Yeah. But in the past two or three years, I mean, I ask my students what artists interest them. Who are the important artists? And she'll come up before Picasso. No kidding. So, really? Yeah. That's exciting. That's yeah. really interesting. Um, well, so what happened was I was, you know, starting the ideas of this podcast and I was up to the third episode and I, I didn't just want to do guys all the time because men have been very, like, historically very prominent as, as you know, create, creative geniuses, quote unquote. 
And so I was like, well, let's try to balance it out just for even my own like mental exploration. And then I was like, who's someone I haven't really explored much before, but it has, has that iconic status. And Frida Kahlo came up. And I, I never explored her to the, to the point where I have some of my other uh, personal idols. And just in the process of just starting to read about her and looking at her work, um, I was just really stunned at just the depth of uh, specifically her personal um, use of, of symbolism. So just some backstory. I mean, she was uh, an artist uh, from Mexico. And she, one of the kind of things that brought her into the public spotlight was she ended up marrying Diego Rivera, which at the time he was one of the most prominent painters of the world at, uh, you know, early, uh, like the 1930s time, right, in, in that uh, early 1900s time. Um, and uh, she became synonymous with this idea of, of um, Mexican nationalist pride, and in her art, it, you know, people say that uh, it's influenced by folk art of, of Mexico. But what really interested me is, is this idea that she was obsessively painting these portraits at least two every year throughout her life. And all of these portraits have just a, a deep level of personal symbolism that's really unique to her. Like people kind of associate her, try to label her with surrealism and all this stuff. But... Um, when, when you really look at it and you read her writings of the time, her, her journals and her letters, you see that each one of these paintings is, is incredibly personal. It's about something that usually was happening within the six-month period around uh, her life. And that's it's a really unique thing because they're all beautiful works of art, but they were made for either herself or just a very small group of, of, of her close friends or, or uh, lovers. And it's, it's a unique thing, you know. It stands out. Interesting. So that podcast is there. Are you also working on uh, Salvador Dali? I definitely will be. Like, that's one of my guys. Like, I was like, cool. I, that's one of my first idols. But at the same time, he's, he's, a, he's a slippery character, that one, because anything that he personally said about himself was half, half a lie, half a truth. So it's hard to, to get a jump on what his, his real backstory and what his real thoughts were like, you know? Yeah, you have to get a reliable biography. Right. Are there any that you recommend? For Salvador Dali? Yeah, reliable biography. I haven't dived into him as much my, yet. Uh, my, my father kept up on the arts, and he read uh, one of Salvador Dali's autobiographies. Mm. In which That's one of them I read, I think, as yeah. well, yeah. Dali describes sitting in a chair at a table and feeling space move through him, mm. which is the Einsteinian... Hmm. notion of gravity as opposed to the Newtonian notion, which is there's a force attracting things to fall down. So, But um, we don't know. Maybe he made that up. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, he, yeah, he was a fascinating mind. Uh, just like with, with Nikola Tesla, you, you, I start to come to this conclusion that uh, genius is weird. Like, just Well, hopefully. Uh, actually, you know, it's, it's interesting. Uh, if you go back to the 1960s, um, <clears throat> think about a world of junk paperback books when they, you know, they were starting to come out. And the only book about Tesla was a junk paperback, hmm. kind of sensational They're paperback. Kidding. Yeah, the, it's uh, only in the past maybe 20 years that he's emerged as this major figure. Mm. And, uh, you know, Elon Musk's 
naming his company after him, and he got spoken about on uh, Big Bang Theory. Uh, but he didn't have that stature in the 60s. Well, yeah, what's really fun is I, w- I was looking at old New York City historical uh, newspaper clippings. And you can find them all online. They're all digitized. It's amazing. And they're searchable, which is so fun. So from that time period where Nikola Tesla was around in New York City, um, it's like you, you start to assume because of the, his uh, lack of notoriety for well, maybe you know, in the last decade, like you said, you started to get to know him more. But at, the, at his time period when he was living in New York City, he was actually like the newspaper go-to. Like um, constantly they would, they would refer to him. I mean, when you search through these digital archives, there's dozens and dozens and dozens of mentions of Tesla, either because they're interviewing him, asking him about electricity or about, you know, how dangerous is a lightning storm in the city? Are we safe? Like he was their go-to guy for everything, cool. electricity and, and engineering, and it was really fascinating to see because then they would have like little sketches of him drawn by like you know the newspaper illustrator. Um, so uh, during his time, he was actually really well known. Interesting. Yeah. Did uh, Did you see Woody Allen's movie Midnight in Paris? Uh, no, that one I haven't yet. <laughs> um, it's there's a, uh, an American couple today. And he's a screenwriter and disillusioned with the feels he's sold out. He's working on a novel. His wife is, they're engaged, going to get married. She's bugging him, forget this novel stuff. (laughs) One night he's sitting on a stoop at midnight and a 1920s big taxi cab comes by and it's full of revelers. Mm. And they say, get in. And they take him to a party. And there's Cole Porter and Salvador Dali and the whole American expat. Uh, there's um, uh, T.S. Eliot and mm-hmm. on and on and on. And then he's in cafes with um, Salvador Dali. Mm. So you're going to enjoy that in your research on Dali. Actually, yeah. And one of the interesting things about the movie is that does he really go back in time or is he hallucinating? Because the movie is like a present era? Kind well, of thing, no, the thing is... He does. He hangs out with these people. He's able to go to that spot anytime he wants, and reasonably reliably, they'll pick him up, and he goes back to that era, and he gets huh. a girlfriend in that era, huh. and then in the morning he's in today. Yeah. But he doesn't. These people and his conversations with them don't reveal anything that you wouldn't already. He wouldn't already know. That he wouldn't already know. Okay. In other Interesting. words. We all know, yes, Cole Porter, this and that, and yes, Dolly, this and that, and yes, T.S. Eliot, this and that. But if you really could have um, frozen, you know, T.S. Eliot and fought him out and interviewed mm. him today, you'd ask him all kinds of stuff that we don't know. <laughs> right, right. No, certainly. And uh, the movie doesn't do that. So it, it, that sort of adds to its ambiguity. Hmm. But it's such perfect actors for each of these characters. Oh, no kidding. And perfect characterizations of, or even caricatures of each of these figures. So if you're working on Dolly, you're going to enjoy that movie. Yeah, no, I, I certainly will. I, let me tell you a little story. Uh, so Andy Warhol was as famous for himself was as much his work of art right. as his art. right. And when I talk about that, there's a picture on the cover of New York Times Magazine section from 1968 of Andy Warhol with ultraviolet and 
uh, Viva, two of the superstars. Hmm. And I became a good acquaintance with Ultraviolet. Hmm. And she was a great beauty. And when I knew her, she was a bit older. And then she died a few years ago, uh, a beautiful older woman. Hmm. But uh, I was working, I work with a, a company that fabricates for sculptors. Hmm. And she was making some complicated stuff. And we said, yeah, you know, we can make it. So I'm driving her out to the company. Now, in addition, I'm director of research for something called Timeship, which hmm. is a next-generation cryonics facility. So um, it's based on advancements in avoiding ice crystals when freezing, and which are very damaging. And just freezing uh, of people. Yeah, when you freeze somebody. After they pass away? Yeah. Okay, I guess. Well, actually, <laughs> well, they would alive. like to do it as soon as possible. <laughs> oh, wow. But the law says they have to be dead. <laughs> Otherwise, it's euthanasia. I wonder you if know, some people would be interested in being alive when they're frozen. Well, what some happens probably is do that. in ideal circumstances, wow. the doctor declares death, the team jumps in two mm-hmm. seconds later. They're just waiting in the wings. They're, uh-huh. Yeah, they're, they're at the hospital wow. with all their equipment. <laughs> no kidding. So, but anyway. And they just start freezing right away. Right. Yeah, there's a whole process. They have to wow. drain the blood and put cryoprotectants in wow. and hook up to a blood, uh, a blood lung machine and uh, lower the temperature. There's a whole whole procedures. So <clears throat> I'm in the car with ultraviolet. Okay. This is recently, like a few years ago before yeah, she passed away, right? Five years five ago. Five years ago. Okay. I'm in the car with ultraviolet, taking her out to the, our fabricating facility. And conversation is that. So I tell her what I'm telling you now. Mm. She says, oh, yeah, Salvador Dali and I were signed up to be frozen together. <laughs> together? <laughs> like while she's so still alive? First of all, she knows all about cryonics. <laughs> okay. Second of all, she's one of the first people to sign up. Whoa, so she signed and up right third wow. of all, she was Salvador Dali's lover. <laughs> no kidding. No kidding. So, you know, you get... Three stories in one there. Yeah, it's just jam-packed. It's like a, a lot of questions that will follow that. And also, that. <laughs> you know, you, you, you assume what, particularly when someone's older, you know, you assume what they're, whether they're hip or not, what they're into, what they know about. Then you find out they know more than you. <laughs> right, right, right. They, they've lived. <laughs> right, right, right. Huh. So she, um, she wrote a beautiful book called Famous for 15 Minutes. Hmm. which was a phrase about, you know, uh, Andy Warhol said, in the future, everybody will be famous for 15 minutes. And he's right. (laughs) It's come true. Good prophecy. So, but uh, she came from a wealthy French family, Hmm. and she returned to her family, and they they had a country estate. They had a big picnic table for their summer, you know, picnic dinners. Hmm. And she's telling them about her, who she is and what she's up to in New York. Yeah. And one of them said, oh, you must be famous. Right. <laughs> and she says, well, for 15 minutes. <laughs> uh, and she had a she had a rock group called Tarantula. No kidding. Where she Everyone would, had a rock group back then. <laughs> <laughs> she, uh, I saw one of her performances at St. Mark's Church, mm. which is, there would, you know, there would be, be a lot of that stuff there. Cool. And, she comes on with uh, screaming into a microphone and a movie showing in the background of a 1950s horror movie of Attack of the Giant Tarantula. Oh, man. So here's this tarantula <laughs> marching, uh, you know, and these soldiers shooting at it with uh, with flamethrowers. 
<laughs> she's singing. Oh, man, I love it. <laughs> so I mentioned I saw that. She says, do you have a recording of that? Oh, right. Or <laughs> <laughs> she doesn't. Uh, and I said, no, nobody had a, nobody had a phone. Nobody thought days. to record it at the well, time. Well, nobody had a. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, yeah. You'd need an 8 millimeter or something. So listen, this is John LaBelle. Our show is Visionaries. And I'm talking with MJ DeLorean. So, okay. <laughs> in a Dorian, Dorian. <laughs> MJ Dorian, sorry. Uh, Dorian, I think so it's, it's a, from Back to the Future. <laughs> right. Back to the past and the future, right. So, tell us where people can find your web pages, your podcasts, uh, what else you've been working on. Uh, sure. I mean, the podcast is available uh, on all podcast platforms. And, and what's it called? What do they search for? Sure. So just search Creative Codex. So Creative and then Codex, C-O-D-E-X. Great. And uh, it's everything from Apple Podcasts to uh, Spotify has it nowadays to, to Google Podcasts to Podbean and all the good stuff. Um, I also have a site, which is just my uh, my name, mjdorian.com. So M-J-D-O-R-I-A-N. And on there you can you know be linked into... Uh, the podcast side of things where I have all the photos from the various episodes that, that relate to the things I'm talking about. And also just my music projects are on there as well. So tell us about your music projects and what you do to make a living. Sure. So there's, uh, there's, a, lot, there's a lot to unpack there. Uh, for quite a number of years since college, I've been teaching music. So uh, that helps just as a good steady living. I do enjoy it too. I just happen to, you know... Uh, now, what what yeah. specialty? I mean, um, piano, basic music theory. Yeah, a little bit of everything. I mean, it, it's uh, the steady one is teaching one on one piano, guitar, music theory. Uh, sometimes classes, sometimes one on one. I also do guest lectures at colleges for friends and, and colleagues who are professors. I'll lecture on on film music, usually or video game music. And uh, I ended up, you know, getting a degree from NYU uh, in film scoring. So I, I did that as a career for, for quite a few years. And that kind of uh, also vent- spread out into doing music production for pop music. So that's kind of where I am currently, even though I still do films occasionally. So let me make a comment yeah. about films and you can expand on it. Sure. I was <coughs> watching some TV show talking about the music and scoring in films. And it showed a suspense scene with the music <clears throat> and without the music. Mm. <laughs> and without the music, somebody's walking up the stairs. So what? <laughs> sure. So what, what, is, what is the role of music in movies? Um, it's definitely, uh, it's, it's like watching the beginning of The Shining and you see that, uh, that wonderful shot of the car, you know, just driving in the mountainous regions and... Uh, on its own, that shot, you know, when it's panning through uh, all the landscape and everything and you're watching this car, it could be any movie. I mean, it could be, uh, it could be a road trip uh, comedy flick. It could be a romance. It, it could be anything that you're, you know, you could possibly imagine a car is going to, right? But is the music that's telling you there's, there's going to be some serious stuff going down here, so you better hold tight. You know, this huge organ and super dramatic and, and like, uh-oh, you know, they, they better just turn that car around already. That's not, this is not going to go well for them. So how do you, as the scorer, create that effect in dialogue with the director? In other words, does the director say, uh, what, uh, here's what I need in this scene, in this shot? Or do you look at it and say, this isn't going to make sense unless I do thus and such? How does that relationship work? 
Yeah. <clears throat> I mean, music is sometimes a character as well in the film, but a lot of times it's functioning uh, from a perspective of one of the characters. So the easiest way uh, to get a sense of what to do as a musician if you're writing music for a film is to get into the psychology of the lead character of the film. And if you tend to write the music from that character's perspective, what emotion they're feeling in that moment, uh, in that scene, what uh, even something as interesting as uh, how fast their heartbeat would be going, and that can help determine the tempo of the music. So, you know, obviously if it's a calm scene, uh, if it's a memory, then it's slower. If it's a suspenseful scene, you're going to do a faster tempo. And then in terms of the, the talk, the back and forth between a director, I mean, your own instinct has to inform it a lot um, because it would, but what I mean by that is just the practice of writing the music to the film because there is a back and forth with the director, but all the director can really tell you is what the emotion is and what the intention of the characters and the scene are. And that's the thing that's supposed to help you the most because ideally they, you know, they, they shouldn't be telling you to use a clarinet instead of a saxophone because, um, you know, there's, sometimes there's other artistic decisions to make and, and the overall emotion is more important, you know. The, um, uh, it'd be interesting to see the same movie with two different scores. Oh, yeah, it's really fun. Because, yeah, yeah. it become a different movie. Yeah, as, as part of the process of, of trying to get good at, at scoring music for films, w one of the good old tried-and-true methods is, is taking clips from a film, scenes, and rescoring them, doing new music to them. And that's, that's one of the things they do at NYU for the film scoring program. Uh, you know, they'll, they'll take clips from films, and at the end of each semester, you, you have to actually conduct your piece with the orchestra playing and the film... Uh, on the screen, uh, traditionally the way they do it, like in an L.A. scoring stage and stuff like that. So can we look forward to a podcast about uh, film scoring? <laughs> uh, if, there's, if people demand it or if, if you think people would find it interesting, I mean, it's something that I've, I've been doing for enough years where I take it for granted that people might or may or may not find it interesting. So uh, sure, if, if, you, if yeah. you think people dig it. Yeah, I, I think there's a... Um there's a real uh, we don't get as much in in various fields how they how they do that hmm. and of course it's over dramatized <laughs> but police work you know i mean oh, are we yeah. interested in what cops do well sure. law and order ran for 30 years or whatever oh it yeah was. people yeah love that uh, topic and uh, what lawyers do they're bringing perry mason back Sure. Uh, or the um, uh, the good fight, you know, which mm. is continues the good wife. Mm. Uh, are people <clears throat> and this, there's some things like architecture moves too slow. <laughs> <laughs> you can't make a TV series about an architect. <laughs> uh, but um, I think we, we really are interested in in how they do that. There's a book that just got reviewed this. Um, I think it was this Sunday in the New York Times, if not the week before, on coding, computer programmers. <clears throat> so here are people, I mean, if it's um, artists creating paintings or uh, yeah, there are lots of movies on how movies are made. Didn't Francis Ford Coppola's wife make a documentary on the making of Apocalypse Now? Hmm. <clears throat> and there are other movies on the makings of 
important movies. But how do they make computer code? What is that? How do they do that? Who are these people? What's right. the skill? What's How's one different <clears throat> from another? What does a, a genius coder do that an ordinary coder doesn't do? Hmm. And this book, it's a little bit too much, I think, on politics and a little bit too much on how evil uh, the big companies have become, hmm. And it, which is not the coder's fault. But, you know, and I actually took a course in programming, uh, not that I could do it, but I just took an introductory course. So I don't understand what it is. Sure. You know. Yeah, you got to understand it. <laughs> so I think we, we are interested in how these things are done. Yeah. And here we are in a world through whether it's YouTube or podcasts where we can go into the stuff in, uh, in more depth. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the one thing I can say about film scoring that uh, I find really compelling as an idea and one of my teachers used to always say it, is that to be a good film composer, um, you basically have to be a better composer than a concert composer. Because if you're just writing music for a concert, you're basically doing what you want and going by your own aesthetic and doing the things that sound good to you without any intention of you know, um, rewriting it for the sake of somebody else's opinion, usually. Unless you're writing, you know. Well, again, that would be concert music. I'm gonna. I was gonna say unless you're writing for a dance or something. But concert music, kind of purest form of just expression of what you're going for. While if you're writing music for a film, uh, I can't tell you how many times I've run into the situation where I write something that I think is I'm so proud of. Like it's, it's, you know, sat up all night you know, until 5 a.m. and I was like, oh man, this is just like one of the best things I've ever written. And then uh, I send it to the director producer, and then a few days they come back and they're like, uh, "Yeah, this, I, this, you know, this is great, but this is not what we're going for with that particular scene. It just it feels too waltzy or something like this." And I'm like, "What are you talking about? Like, this is the best thing I ever wrote." So it does, you know, your own aesthetic decisions and and how good you are. It doesn't factor in as much as what the film needs and so then you as a composer are like okay back to the drawing board or okay maybe I can change this element of this piece like maybe I can still salvage it and you got to go back to uh, your your compositional tools in a sense you know interesting are there uh, periods in music that are more influential on film scores I mean does romanticism uh, uh, used as thematically in movies of the 40s, what periods of music are influential in film scores today? Yeah, I mean, it depends also on, on what the film is going for in terms of is it a period piece? You know, those would tend to be more uh, classically scored with themes and, you know, orchestral kind of sounds, which is what I really love. I, I love those kinds of approaches, kind of the golden era, you know, up into the 90s. Uh, films were still made with like live orchestras. Uh, these days, it's you know it's here or there. I mean, it could be mostly an electronic score, um, even though they, they, you know for the big ones still use orchestras. But it depends. It depends on you know what the director and the film are going for, uh, because quite a lot of films these days are more about just uh, the mood and the texture and the rhythm rather than, like, let's make a theme that's going to then, you know, uh, there's going to be a variation of it here, and there's going to be a counter theme there. It was more of a, almost like an opera approach to film scoring. And when a character would come in, he would get his yeah. theme music. Yeah, I mean, I love that idea, because that's, that's, so, that's so fun as a composer. But as a director, the director's like, no, no, I just, I just want it 
to be like a little tense. Like that's it. Like I don't want I don't want a melody coming in. I just want it to be a little tense. So I'm, then I feel like, well, why don't you just you press one finger on this pad and then you do it? Press the tense button. Press, that's it. Because we have yeah synthesizers for that these days. But so, are there any of your music that uh, people link to from your website if they want to hear it, or how? Where would people find your music? Sure. Yeah, it's um, a lot of my music is uh, either on my page. I mean, all the links are there on my website, so mjdorian.com. Cool. Yeah. So I think we should uh, wrap up. Anything else you want to uh, cover uh, or remind us again what you're doing on Creative Codex? Uh, Creative Codex. Creative Codex. Remind us what you're doing, what's going to be coming up, and where to find it. So I think what also drives me forward with it, with what I'm trying to accomplish or give people a sense of, is this idea that, well, again, humans have been around for 200,000 years, and we... Yeah, what conclusions have you come to? (laughs) (laughs) To to wrap it up in five sentences. Right. Uh, In the times moving forward, as artificial intelligence starts to, you know, become more and more of a prominent feature of our daily life, one of the things that makes humans what they are is creativity, the ability to create and the ability to you know, have insights and um, improve on the culture that is already existing. And I think the last, the last bastion of um, development that artificial intelligence will go through is mastering creativity. But that's, we're still a little while, quite a far while, I think, away. That's the last, I think, thing that, that they'll, they'll be able to master. So for the near foreseeable future, human creativity, I think, is still going to be pretty valuable. And for us to understand what we're doing and improve upon it and be better at uh, having insights, I think that's a valuable thing to go forward with. Great. So listen, our guest has been uh, MJ Dorian, and this is Visionaries, John LaBelle, your host. You'll find us here on prn.fm every Monday at 10 to 11 a.m. See you next week.